I've said this a bunch in other interviews, but it's true. It's like a lot of times when you, you write a book, you know, you'll get, the book will get reviewed and they'll compare you to other writers, usually in a complimentary way. Um, but it never feels like a compliment to me. Like I, I, I never feels good to have someone read something you did and be thinking of someone else. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I'm really pleased to have on the show Chuck Klosterman. Klosterman has been a columnist for Esquire, ESPN.com. He wrote the Ethicist column for the New York Times Magazine, and he is the author of 11 books. I wanted to have Chuck on here for a while. I'm a big fan of his work, and we just kind of covered his career and just had a look about... (laughs) You know, the culture. I guess he's just one of those people you just sort of dream of having a coffee with and just seeing where their mind goes. Chuck Chuck seems to be able to take any topic, any subject, any profile, and just turn it into something that you wouldn't expect uh, in terms of depth and perspective and um, contributing to a conversation. And uh, I think that's the biggest reason why I've been such a fan of his work is you just can't wait to see something you're excited to watch or read or somebody you'd want to talk to and see where Chuck is going to go with it. So I hope you enjoy this week's guest, Chuck Klosterman, on Tourist Information. I was listening to your podcast with Bill Simmons on the Rewatchables and you were talking about The Doors. And you mentioned your kind of obsession for biopics, and especially when they have a lot of gratuitous exposition in the dialogue. And so I thought, as you mentioned, we discussed your career. Maybe we could do that in the terms of if a biopic was made of Chuck Klosterman and you were in charge of the screenplay. (laughs) What does that look like? Yeah. uh, Okay. Okay. Um, So is it a... Is it a biopic that starts with my youth or is it start kind of when my career begins? Because that's always the question. Like, you know, a lot of times you'll read, like, say, a biography of a, you know, a rock musician or a sports star or whatever. And you want to skip through the point until they become the person, you know. Uh, So I I don't know what you want to know about. Maybe we could think of two biopics, the artful one that starts at the beginning of your life and then the more commercial version of, of your career taking off. Well, you know, my the early part of my life is, in my view, uh, incredibly boring, although I have found throughout my life it seems to be the thing people are most interested in because it seems so unlike the experience of certainly... of people who work in media, but basically writers in general. I mean, I came from a farm uh, outside of a town called Wyomere, North Dakota, that had 500 people. There were like 23 kids in my graduating class, and I lived outside of that town. Um, My town had never produced any writers that I'm aware of. One guy from my school became a weatherman, like a local weatherman. That was sort of the biggest celebrity achievement. Um, And uh, I lived, I guess, in the 80s, a pretty isolated life. I can remember telling uh, my best friend, uh, who I met years later in Ohio, 
about uh, like how my town would like celebrate a wedding. And I remember him saying, like, are you from Russia? Like he thought it was so bizarre, the things that we did in this town. But of course, it seemed totally normal to me. And I projected the idea, as did everybody in my town, that we were living these incredibly boring lives that was so, uh, you know, had no intersection or, or, or crossover with like the media world. So I don't know. It's, it's almost hard for me to explain. It's very surprising always when something you associate as completely uninteresting is perceived by others as the most interesting thing that they could know about you. What did your parents do? My dad was a farmer. Uh, my mom had seven kids. She was a housewife and didn't work around the farm too. Um, so, uh, you know, I was born in 72 and, uh, the 70s were a very good time for farming, and then the 80s were a terrible time. So what I really mostly remember is just spending the 1980s always assuming that our farm was going to go bankrupt, always waiting for it to rain, and it never did. I mean, I live in Portland now, and I love it because I have come to realize I unconsciously internalized this idea that anytime it looked like it was going to rain, people are happier because that's how it was in the eighties in North Dakota. Anytime it looked like rain, people got excited. So I feel that in Portland where it rains every day for seven months or whatever. Um, uh, so that, so my dad had a stroke too, when I was pretty young and my brother who was 17 years older than me, he took over the farm. My dad recovered, but my brother took over. So it was kind of my brother's farm for a lot of my memory. And in some respects, my oldest brother, um, uh, really all of my siblings to some degree, a lot of times seemed like they kind of had the roles that a lot of people's parents had because, you know, my oldest sister's 18 years older, my brother's 17, I have another sister who's 16, you know, um, so that's that was what my life was like growing up. Suggest to me that you were the youngest of your group. Yeah, I was seven. Yeah. Wow, I mean, it's odd because I mean, what you're describing is very much like my parents. I mean, sort of my father and his siblings. Like, it seems like it's from a different generation. Well, that span of yeah. Well, you know, my dad. My dad was born in 1928, um, and you know, so there it does go back. Like, I had. In, in some ways that like that, that uh, a childhood that probably did seem closer to the generation that would have preceded me. I mean, like, you know, there were seven kids in my family in our house and we had one bathroom, you know, now, you know, in my house, I have three bathrooms. The idea of having one bathroom for seven people did not seem odd. Like it never occurred to me how strange that was. Um, because the main thing I remembered is that it was our second house, that the house that my family had had just before I was born, when it was six kids, like just before I was born, they only had two bedrooms for eight people or whatever. So they viewed our new house as this massive thing. And, you know, so everything is relative. Um, but at the same time, I never thought of any of this as... Uh, strange. I never perceived us as being poor ever until I got to New York and I realized how rich people are. You know, it's like I, I, these are things that that I'm 
now as a 48 year old person, like kind of figuring out like why this is seen as so odd to other people. But, you know. Well, it's, it's interesting also because the background you're talking about, I, I was listening to a podcast with Lauren Euler, who I think I first read just because she seems to be one of the only critics with real tenacity to go after sort of sacred people in publishing. I don't know if you read her criticisms of Roxanne Gay and then Gia Tolentino, but she mentioned she's from West Virginia, just how few people in media are from any class other than quite wealthy. And I've noticed that listening to like the long form podcast, everybody's parents seems to be in the same two professions of either a doctor or a lawyer practically. It's real surprising. I mean, Growing up in North Dakota, I assumed the difference between life in rural North Dakota and life in New York was actually exaggerated and that it was actually closer than uh, than it was kind of portrayed. Having now experienced all of those worlds, the gap is actually much greater. Like, like I, I, I don't think that I would have even pursued um, any kind of life in the arts if I would have known how it actually was, because it would have seemed totally impossible to break through those obstructions. I mean, and in some ways, I don't know how many, like it's it's just, it's very odd. I mean, I, I know a lot of people like who work at the New York Times now. It is shocking how many of those people came from the same six to eight colleges. Like it's just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like, it almost seems as though just the, the the kind of the natural machinations of life would make it a little more intellectually diverse, but it is not. It, it's 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 so it is it is strange. I mean, I, I have you know I don't do this much anymore, but like I used to give a lot of talks at colleges, and um, the course the main question a college kid, particularly if they're like in journalism or in creative writing, would ask me is like sort of you know how can I get in your position or how can I get your life? Um, and at the time, my answer was, I was like, well, the way it worked out for me is so weird and so specific. It could never be replicated. But now I don't think it would even be possible to replicate it. Like the, the institutions that I moved through and the way that I did it, I don't think those things even exist anymore. So, I mean, like I, 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 uh, I, I do feel like, just incredibly lucky that I think that I kind of got in under some sort of closing window that I did not even know existed, but the window was closing and I slipped underneath and I kind of got into this life. Um, and it's just, you know, the biggest factor is chance. I mean, I, it's always weird to admit that, but it really is like the biggest factor in anyone's success or lack of success is chance. Yeah. Yeah. That's such an interesting I, I was doing kind of a deep dive into Anthony Bourdain a little while ago, and I was always fascinated by his origin story in publishing uh, from this slush pile at the New York New Yorker. And I was like, that just doesn't happen. Anybody I've ever spoken to in publishing on the editorial side, I always have to ask them because I have submitted a lot of things to slush piles when I was starting out. Are they ever looked at? And all of them have said never. They're, they're almost never reviewed, and he was kind of covering up the fact that his mother worked at the New York Times as an editor and a writer and was good friends with Remnick's wife, and that's how it was passed along to Remnick. But it sounds much better. 
that I, I'm this struggling drug addict cook and I submitted to the sludge pile at the New Yorker, you know, aw shucks kind of thing. And I, I'm always intrigued how people curate their sort of mythology. Well, I mean, what you're describing, it still can work, but or, or at least it could when I was younger, but it requires a very specific scenario. It requires the person who sort of pulls you out of that pile to be equally desperate. <laughs> like, like they, they, they have to be somebody who is also kind of just guessing. I mean, like, okay, Fargo Rock City was the first book I wrote. So I'm working at the Akron Beacon Journal, and I write this book kind of at night. And I, and I, I, at one point, I kind of attempt to publish it, get it published myself uh, by, I would like, I would go to the Barnes and Noble and I would find books that were kind of vaguely similar to mine, not in topic, but I just thought, well, this is kind of the same book. Then I would read the acknowledgements and everybody, of course, always thanked their editor. Hmm. And then what I would do is I would call that editor at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, when I knew they would be at lunch. And I left a message that said, hey, my name's Chuck Klosterman. I'm a culture writer with the Akron Beacon Journal. I saw you wrote this, you know, you published this book, and I would say the book, and I'd like to talk to you about it. Well, they always assumed that I was calling up to do a story on that book, so they would call me back, which is all you're trying to do anyways. Like, the only reason you would send someone a query letter is that they'd call you. So then you had, like, 90 seconds to pitch the book. Um, and that worked. Like like a, like Billboard Books wanted to publish Fargo Rock City. They wanted to give me $9,000 and they wanted to make it into like an encyclopedia of heavy metal. So I said no, which at the time, like my friends couldn't believe I said no to this. I think they thought I had lied about the offer because they were like, you know, but it just, it didn't, it felt like it would be, it wasn't the book I wanted to do. And even though like, you know, at the time, I didn't have any money, so 9000 bucks seemed like a lot, but I said no. But I had a friend from college who was in the NYU like graduate program for creative writing. And during the summer, those people would get jobs, like clerical jobs, at agencies and like literary houses. So he tells me, he's like, well, I can't get you an agent. Like, I, if I could get you an agent, I'd get myself an agent. But I can put your manuscript on the desk uh, that is like not just the manuscripts they throw out or whatever. So I, I sent him this thing, he puts it on this desk and I got a call immediately, like two days later from this agent named Todd Keithley, who's not even an agent anymore, but he has, was just started. Like he had been an agent for like less than a year. He had published a book on pirates. I think that was his, his, the only thing he had done, but he is like, Hey, I want to be your agent, you know? So, I'm 27, he's 27 or 28, you know, um, he hasn't done anything. I haven't done anything. Like I say, sure. Okay. And then he immediately tells me, okay, I'm not going to start selling this book for six months. And I was like, oh, great. Like I got scammed or something. I didn't even pay any money, but I got scammed. But his argument was, well, nobody buys books in the summer. So we have to get through the summer and then I'll take the book out in fall. I didn't know if this guy was legitimate or anything, but he was totally right because he took the book out and then immediately uh, there were like little offers. And then I sold it to Scribner for $25,000. That was the advance. But there again, it was a weird situation because the guy who bought it is my editor, Brant Rumble. That was his first book too. 
Like he had been the assistant of someone, he'd been a very good assistant to uh, someone named Nan Graham. And I think the people at Scribner said, okay, you've worked enough. You can spend $25,000 on whatever book you want. And you can buy a book and see if it works. And he, and mine was the book that he bought. So it was his first book in a way. It was definitely my first book, you know, but that's, but that's what I'm, you know, it's like it had in all those situations, it had to be people who were kind of, you know, as desperate as I was just like no connections. Like I'd never been to New York when I sold that book. I'd never been there once. Yeah. What did, what, what did you imagine New York would be? I mean, I guess I should start with, when did you know that you wanted to be a writer? What were the books that really marked you early on? Well, you know, in high school, I did a lot of writing. I would like write for the high school newspaper and I, you know, people seemed to think it was okay. My English teacher seemed to think I was an okay writer. She was supportive, you know, um, but I didn't really think of becoming a writer as a profession. I'd never met a writer who did that solely. You know, I didn't really know how it worked. Um, so I assumed I would go to college and I would like become an English teacher and like a basketball coach or a football coach, like at the high school level. That was my assumption. Um, in fact, it's odd. I, I have like, you know, those books that you, uh, when you're a senior in high school, it's like your senior memories or whatever. And they have all these questions about like, oh, what do you want to do in the future? And one of the things is dream job. And I found this book and my dream job as a high school senior was to be an offensive coordinator for an SEC football team. And what I think is so hilarious about this is that even in my fantasy, I'm an assistant coach. Like I didn't even dream of becoming a head coach. I was like, I want to run the offense. Like, so like, I didn't really have like the idea of being a writer. I didn't, I didn't think of that. So I go to college. And I start writing for the college newspaper, which I was shocked to realize they paid you for. Like, I thought that you'd do it for free like it was in high school. So they were like, you can write about the football team or whatever. You know, and I started doing that. I became a columnist. Then I just got very lucky and that this thing that I was doing, I, I really liked it and it seemed like I could do it. Like it was so many people around me, like didn't know what they wanted to do with their life and didn't know what they should be. And I kind of stumbled into this thing that I really enjoyed. And it seemed like I was okay at it. So then I thought, well, I'll just become a journalist. I'll become a newspaper reporter because, you know, one thing about majoring in journalism, it explains the job. Like a journalism leads to journalist or, you know, like if you major in history, I did like become a historian. That didn't seem possible. So, um, so I became, you know, so I graduated in 94 and I get a job in Fargo as a reporter. And that's sort of how it began. And then I thought maybe if I was very lucky and I worked really hard, eventually maybe I would publish one book when I was like 50. Like I, I, I just, you know, cause I, I didn't, I thought like that's, I don't know. I, it, it seems so like, I, I can't even say that like, it seemed like an impossible dream. Cause I wasn't even dreaming these things. I, I honestly was not like it. I was not, Everything that has happened in my life is so much better than anything that I believe was possible. I don't, I, I it's, I, I, it's weird to me. Like I, I kind of keep waiting for the terrible thing to eventually happen that I feel is destined to occur. That's interesting. I mean, you're in Portland, Portland for me, I, I grew up in Vancouver and Portland, I think is the sister city for Vancouver. 
Um, Vancouver, Washington? No, I was just going to qualify. Vancouver, oh, yeah. Canada, okay. not Washington. Um, but I remember going there for the first time, and it was the first time I was going to visit a writer that I really admired, Charles D'Ambrosio from The New Yorker. Mm. And I completely fucked up the meeting because I asked him, he had in an essay he wrote about his brother, one of his brothers committed suicide, the other attempted suicide by jumping off a bridge in Seattle. And there's a line in the essay that says something to the effect of, he had the presence of mind to reach into his pocket after he landed and was badly injured in the, in the water and grab a quarter from his pocket and call an ambulance. And I said, it doesn't cost a quarter to call 911 and call an ambulance. This is a strange detail. Why is it there? And he really did not enjoy that query. Um, and it was just an incredibly awkward hour where he was just chain smoking. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder for you, uh, I, mean, I, was, I think I was 22 or something. Who was the, who and what was it like the first time you met a writer that you really admired, that you maybe never imagined you'd ever meet? Um... That's interesting because there's also, I don't know, I really see different levels of interaction. Um, like I interviewed writers, but did I meet them? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, you know, it was like it's a constructed scenario where I'm asking them questions that I probably wouldn't ask if I met them casually in a bar. I would have to get to know them for a year before I'd bring such things up, maybe. But, you know, when it's a journalistic scenario, you can just go right for the jugular. I, I, I think maybe the one that actually I think of, it's odd to say this, but before I moved to New York, uh, I was really into a rock writer named Rob Sheffield. I just thought he was just the best of the rock critics. And it became very strange to go to New York and realize, oh, half the people here at Spin know Rob. And we're going to a birthday party this weekend and Rob Sheffield is there. And then we became very good friends. And Rob Sheffield came to my wedding. And like I said, like, that's the weirder thing. You know, the idea that there was somebody who I guess I thought was completely separate from my world. But then if you show up in his world, you're in the same world. Um, so like, you know, and granted, now he's in a particularly like very affable person. He's a real nice guy. So maybe other people might not be that way. But there was a lot of that for me. It was mostly kind of in the world of of rock writing that when I went basically from being completely outside of that world to having Fargo Rock City come out and then being completely inside of it. We're like, I'm at Spin Magazine now and all these people that I assumed like uh, we're, we're just completely distant from me, seemed to know who I was. And it, went that, and it was, and, and then there was this kind of continual baffling experience of meeting these people, feeling like I had known them as writers and then realizing their actual personalities were completely different. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that it was actually pretty rare to meet someone who actually reflected the way he or she wrote in public. That was a surprise. What do you make of that, that schism between the projected self on the page versus pulling the curtain back and knowing these people personally or privately? Well, you know, I think that part of it has to do with the, with the gap between fiction and nonfiction. 
Um, it's almost kind of a counterintuitive thing, but I feel like people, when they write fiction, are actually trying to make people understand who they are in a way the nonfiction writer does not. I feel like a lot of times a nonfiction writer is trying to create a persuasive character that can sort of act as a surrogate for their ideas. And they're almost building someone who is um, like an avatar for how to get that idea across most effectively, where the fiction writer is hiding everything, but is putting themselves in this really direct way into the work. So like when I interviewed Jonathan Franzen, here again, it wasn't really a meeting. It was a, it was an interview for Esquire or GQ, GQ, I think. Um, but uh, he actually was very much like the way I expected. Like, it, like he, he was exactly that person. Um, I have not found that to be the case with nonfiction writers. So in some ways, I think that the, that the, the fiction writer is actually more present in their work than the nonfiction writer, even though that makes no sense. Yeah. That's fascinating. That's very interesting. Because, I, I mean, I was listening earlier today, like one of the points that Euler made in this podcast was that you have a lot of essays right now where the person almost prophylactically suggests, I'm thinking, I'm thinking as I write this, so that you can't really criticize it because it's sort of saying, don't step on my toes because I, I didn't want to take the time before I sat down to write this. I want to write it as I'm thinking about whatever it is the subject is. And usually there's going to be a bunch of personal stuff included as well. So criticism would kind of automatically become ad hominem. And I just thought it was an interesting way of thinking about it because it is a feature of a lot of essays that I read now where I would never want to publicly criticize them because it would seem like a personal attack as much as a professional one. Well, I don't know if I totally agree with that. This assertion she's making because um, what she, that's true. They're, they're, I mean, I, I do that all the time, in fact, because in some ways I think that I don't fully understand how I feel about something until I start writing about it or, <laughs> or I, or I have the feeling, but I need to write about it in order to explain the, 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 like the tangible things that made me think that way. I don't, it doesn't really seem like a shield though from criticism, it actually seems to make criticism much easier because you're sort of giving away, um, you know, uh, your authority. You're, you're sort of saying like, well, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's really complex to think about, you know, immigration or whatever. Here are the many things that are going on in my mind that have kind of led me to this conclusion. And you almost see the building blocks. Like I, if I'm reading something and I feel like I can see the person thinking through it. I mean, like, like, I mean, like David Foster Wallace was great at this in his essay writing is that you'd almost feel as though the person is admitting, okay, I understand my feelings about this, but now I'm really going to dissect those feelings. And I'm going to dissect the things that I sort of project as rational explanations for my thoughts. Um, I, I don't see how that, how that eliminates criticism though, because um, if nothing else, by adding personal details to what you write, you kind of allow people to sort of marginalize the writer as solely that. Mm. Like, I mean, this, th th you know, that is, uh, I, the second book I wrote uh, was an essay collection. 
And it's by far the most popular book I've done. It's sold almost as much as my other 11 books combined. But it, it, I have a lot of discomfort with it because people will use a sentence from that book or a paragraph from that book as a way to sort of see everything else that I have done simply because it was a much more popular and accessible, but B because um, it's like a, it's like a vulnerability. It's like you're exposing this part of yourself that you can't then reject, you know, like if you say that, that if you, if you, if you show yourself to be a certain kind of person, it's very hard to later say, well, I'm a different person now. Whereas if you just express an idea, if you say, well, I was against capital punishment, now I'm for capital punishment, then you can just sort of describe the steps you go through. You know? Well, it, it is interesting when writers personalize some things. Like I, I, I was late to that documentary. I don't know if you watched it um, the, about the Golden State Killer that Michelle McNamara, yeah. Yeah. based on her stuff. And I, I had to buy the book right away after she started saying there was that passage in it where she said, I should be looking after my newborn child, but, and I'm not one of the victims of this killer, but I feel like a victim of the killer because I'm studying this instead of being with my child. And I just thought you, you have completely elected to neglect your child, but you're saying it's the golden state killer's responsibility that you, you really are a victim in this weird way. And I just thought it was a very unusual thing to say well, yes, but, but you see, this is this is evidence, though, that by doing that, it does not eliminate the possibility of criticism. It has increased your ability to <laughs> criticize it, because now what you're saying is there's the information you've given me about this serial killer. But there's also this information you've given me about yourself. And that's going to kind of warp or accelerate or amplify my perception of your credibility. I mean, that's always the thing about doing like personal essays. The, what people like about personal essays is this idea that they're getting a real person. They're, they're experiencing a real person. I mean, one of the core conflicts in newspaper journalism when in, during the time I did it was that there was this intense dislike of first-person writing uh, sort of by conventional reporters. And part of that was based on the fact that any first-person writing got more attention than anything done from a detached uh, sort of perspective. I mean, it's just, it's, it even doesn't matter even if the detached perspective is superior in every way. People have a, like a, just a, just an immediate gravitation to the idea of someone being themselves and sort of putting themselves in a situation. Um, it's, it's a, so it's a, it's a complicated thing because, you know, I don't, I don't really write about myself anymore. Like I, I, I don't want to, I like, I have changed as a person and I'm just, I don't want to use my life as a vehicle for whatever I'm writing about. Whereas when I was young, that was the only purpose of my life that I saw. Like the only thing that the only value of my life was how I could use it to write about stuff. And now I don't feel that way, but it's too late. I already did it. It already happened. You know, I mean, by far the craziest thing about being a writer 
is that parts of your personality are frozen forever and you can't change it. That if somebody reads Fugger Rock City tonight, they have a better understanding of me at 27 or 28 than I do. Because all I would do if I think about myself as 28, I'm just taking my present tense perception of myself and making myself like slightly less fat and having no beard. And maybe, you know, it's like I still see I can't get away from my sense that I am who I am. Whereas the person who reads that book now, it's like they're actually closer to it. And that person I have like no relationship to the person who wrote that book. But that book will exist even when I'm dead. For you, starting out writing, I mean, if if we could distill what your motivation was beyond sustenance or being able to provide for a family, that kind of thing, um, what do you think it was for you? Like what? Well, because I like I wanted access to the people that I was curious about. I wanted to be able to sit down with them more than status or money or anything like that. I just wanted that ability to get in to the room with them. But I wonder for you, what was it? You know, it's it's a variety of things, Uh, but really one thing more than anything else is partially because I was working at newspapers and newspapers had a lot of limitations to the way you wrote and a lot of, you know, certain language rules and all these things. And I felt really trapped by that. And I felt like I had a lot of things that I just couldn't express through the modality of newspaper journalism. Part of it had to do was that I actually felt like um, this music that I cared about uh, was misunderstood by the world at large and that it was marginalized in a way that wasn't a tragedy, but just was wrong. Um, I enjoyed uh, writing. Like I, 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 I liked that part of it. I liked the typing. I liked seeing, I just, I, I find it fun. But you know, the biggest thing, and it's, it's, I, I don't know how else to say this, but like, I'm just compelled to do it in a way that's not always great. <laughs> like in a way it is like, I am compelled to do this, to write. And I think it it's similar to when you're compelled by a drug you're addicted to or a bad relationship that you can't get out of. Like I, I, I can't, not do it. I, I, I just, I mean, sometimes I just think I could take, you know, I could take some time off and just kind of be cool for a while, but I can't do it. Like I would, even if I wasn't getting published, I think I would still be doing it, which is just maddening to me. It kind of actually makes me fucking mad because it's like, I don't, I, 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 I guess I should be happy, but it's weird. It's weird to be compelled to do something and you don't know why, but I don't know why I'm compelled to do it. Like I, I wrote, tried to work through all the possibilities. Like, is it purely just some kind of ego thing? And I was like, Oh, I don't know. It doesn't seem like, is it, is it some, am I trying to make up for something that was missing in my life when I was young? And it's like, well, maybe, but if that was the case, it would have happened by now. Like I, like, I don't know why. <laughs> like I, 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 I really don't fully know why, but like my, my, my wife would tell me, it's like, she's a writer too. And she's like, you should be happy about this. Because a lot of people don't feel compelled to do that. A lot of people want to avoid doing it. Um, and it's like, I can't avoid it. Did you, when you, 
I mean, who was the who were the first few writers that you really latched onto in a profound way early on? When I was in high school, uh, I think the first one was actually Dave Barry, and it's odd because his reputation is so different now. Um, uh, but it, it, you know, uh, I would he his collections of his columns or whatever. I would buy those in high school, and I just. Oh, I just I, I thought they were hilarious and I thought they were great. And you know, um I I, I like John Feinstein, who wrote Season on the Brink, as uh, the book about the Indiana basketball program in 1987. Like I bet I read that book four times in high school. I remember one time I finished reading it. I was reading it in chemistry class because I was like kind of I didn't like pay attention. I was just sitting in the back reading this book, and I got to the last page. And then I just went back and started reading the first page. Like I would never do that now. But when but when you're young, you do a lot of that. When you're young, you want to be like other writers. Like then I went to college and I was really into Douglas Copeland. That was a huge deal. And there was a spin columnist named Michael O'Donohue, and he was big to me. Like I was really into him for a while. Um, and then you know I, I I got out of college and it was like Raymond Carver for a while. Like I was obsessed with Raymond Carver. And then there was a, a, a rock critic named Chuck Eddy, and I was really into Chuck Eddy. And then there was David Foster Wallace, and that was the most I was obsessed with somebody. But he was the last one. Oh. And I now kind of have this idea that you become a writer when you no longer want to be like other writers. That pri prior to that, anything you're doing is like, well, I see this, and I want to do something like this. Or like, you know, I want to make something that makes me feel the way this other thing made me feel. And then writing begins when you don't feel that way anymore, when you don't want to be like anybody else. Like now, I've said this a bunch in other interviews, but it's true. It's like a lot of times when you, you write a book, you know, you'll get, the book will get reviewed and they'll compare you to other writers, usually in a complimentary way. Um, but it never feels like a compliment to me. Like, I, I, it never feels good to have someone read something you did and be thinking of someone else. I mean, the comparison I always say is like, it'd be like if you start a band and people are like, oh, man, your band is awesome. You know, you're, you're just like the Beatles. Well, that's only a compliment if you're a Beatles tribute band. Like, it, well, you want people to, to think of what of you, you know? So, so that is kind of how it worked for me, that I did go through all these phases of different people. You know, I mean, when I was... You know, and it, it happened, you know, when I was much younger, like, uh, say, seventh and eighth grade, you know, I was really into, um, like, George Orwell and Richard Wright. I was reading these, it was like, that was a big deal to me in junior high, these two writers. I don't know why it was. I have no idea what that was, what was happening. You know, like, well, why these guys, why I was so into it, I, I don't know. I mean, that's. It's kind of the cool thing about being young is that you pursue things and you don't need to justify it to yourself. Like you don't say to yourself, it's like, well, I should be into this because uh, this is important. You just, whatever it is, is what you like, you know? Mm. No, it's interesting what you say. It reminded me a bit of, I, I think when Ray Charles reached out to Billy Joel to sing a duet together, Billy Joel was like, I've been impersonating you my entire career. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I still think about that when I see Steven Spielberg movies, like that last one that was pretty awful. What was it called? Um, 
not replay something. It's a strange title. But I think Richard Brody in The New Yorker said it's really Spielberg still grappling with daddy issues with Orson Welles and Stanley Kubrick. And I'm like, this is a guy in his early 70s who's as successful as Spielberg is, but he's still quoting at a, where you'd kind of expect at a certain point you can emerge where you sing in your own voice a little bit, which seemed to be kind of what you were saying about writing. Well, it is, I, I, I also, like, I wonder if there's, like, another stage to this that I just haven't reached yet, where you get older and then you sort of get more comfortable with the idea of influence. Like, the anxiety of your influences are gone. Like, now, you know, and then maybe you go, like, oh, go, I'm going to go back and try. Like, sometimes you'll, I'll, I'll see someone will be, like, I think maybe Dave Eggers or something and said this one time that he was, like, he was, like, had reached a point where, like, he wanted to go back and be, like, Sal Bellow or whatever. Like, you know, it's, like, that happens sometimes. You know, I think where somebody reaches a point in their life where also the, the, their perception of their own work changes because, um, you know, as I have aged, um, I feel like my writing has dramatically improved and yet seems much worse to me. Huh. Like, like when I was young, I, I felt so much more confident than I am now in the value of the work um, or, or the quality of it. Even though I can, I can tell that like, I mean, if somebody would, if you would ask me like, what are things about your career that you feel good about? Well, I feel good about the fact that I think if you, as I follow the trajectory of those books, I do think they've gotten continually better for the most part, but they feel worse to me uh, because, you know, you, I guess I, I got smarter or something, you know. It's a, well, in what, what, what respect do they seem worse to you as the actual writing itself is better? I'm not quite clear. Well... Okay, like it's, it's hard to describe in some ways, but you know, when I started, um, there was sort of this emotional component to the writing that was a bigger part of it. Mm -hmm. That like I was really kind of like, these books are me. Like the first three books I wrote, they're like, if you want to understand what I'm like, like I'm putting my trying to do you know um but then when i go back i see like oh well you know it's like the writing is too loose and like some of the arguments are like contradictory and and some of the arguments are just proof that i just didn't know enough at the time like you know, I, just, I just had not thought about this thing that i thought i understood enough just as all people do as they age i mean you think about your 20s you, you realize that there were things you believed not because um it was that you were so incorrect about them. It's just like you didn't know, uh, you didn't have enough information to make like a real sort of uh, a nuanced idea. Um, but the thing is, what most people like as readers is that emotional component. Yeah, I mean, like you know, it's like they, they they care less about the constructive quality of writing, which is more of an interest to writers, and they want more of kind of the feeling that comes with it. I mean. Like, I'm not really, I'm not comparing myself to Paul Westerberg, but like, okay, I'm sure Paul Westerberg feels like when he writes music now, he's much better at it than he was when he was, you know, a real young person. And yet people who love his music 
tend to love the replacements more than his solo career, even if they feel like, well, I understand why you think you got better. What we like is the way these things make us feel, you know? Um, right. So now I, I, so I look at things like this. I mean, also writers think about writing differently than readers. So, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I definitely emotionally respond to Billie Holiday a lot more than I do to Mariah Carey, but technically I don't think anybody would make an argument that Billie Holiday's voice has as many octaves as Holiday. Well, no, yeah. There's, I mean, she, I mean music's always, for me, an easy way to describe this. It's like uh, there is nothing that Keith Richards has played that Joe Satriani couldn't play immediately or Steve I couldn't play immediately. They could hear it play. There is tons of things that Steve I and Joe Satriani play that Keith Richards probably couldn't even really figure out how to get started on it. Like, how, to, how am I supposed to do this? And yet that's not, we don't perceive them as greater than Richards. It's like the thing that we like about music is this intangible quality that uh, is very often uh, tied to virtuosity, but more often tied to simplicity and the, the transfer of emotion from point A to point B, point A being the musician, point B being the listener. It's the same thing. I mean, it's, um, like, a, uh, you know, it's just a, it's just a tough, you know, I said, mentioned earlier, like when I used to go to colleges and they'd ask like how to, how to break into writing. It was like in the back of my mind, I was always like, you know, if I really want to help these people, I should tell them to do these things that I consider really reprehensible, which is just start like attacking random famous people. And just make, you know, like, because that, that will raise your profile. You will get attention if what you do as a writer is attack other writers. That will just, that will happen, you know? But that's awful. It's an awful way to go through life, you know? Well, but, I, but I wonder, I mean, it does seem like criticism has sort of largely left publishing. I mean, you mentioned Dave Eggers earlier. I remember some years back, could be 15 years ago, where they were attacking, I think, Dale Peck. Yes. For for that really nasty thing. Who was it for? Rick, Rick Moody. Moody. Yeah, the worst writer, the worst writer of his generation or whatever. And I saw actually Lauren Euler used almost the exact same thing for Roxanne Gay. I, I don't know that she was necessarily quoting it, but it was almost verbatim. And it, to your point, like she got a pile of attention for it, similarly with Gia Tolentino. And it sort of suggested to me People are dying for this kind of cruelty. I mean, Facebook, you can't dislike anything, but surely a lot of people are liking and projecting stuff to make you feel like shit, even though you can't really be critical without it being flagged and all of that. What's your view of how criticism has changed over the years? I mean, Pauline Kael, people love seeing her savage things, but there isn't like that kind of equivalent critic anymore in film or or in like the book review in the Times, it seems. Well, first of all, I I don't I don't know if that is true. I mean, I, I like because what what often happens is you'll be a real negative review of something, a book or a record or a movie will come out, and I'll see all these people say like, "Oh, it's been so long since someone did this. I missed this. This is an important part of the critical discourse." But that just keeps happening. It's like it's, it's like people keep saying this thing has ended. And they always say that during the latest iteration of its reemergence. I don't, um, there's also more like, there's more mass of all criticism. Like there isn't as, there aren't Pauline Kales, but I mean like, like there are so many venues, 
Like, I don't think that you will find many people um, in the public eye who would say, I don't feel like I ever get criticized. They might say, I don't care. That's part of it. But it hasn't, you know, like to be unassailable now, I mean, like, who are the unassailable figures? Like, like I thought George Saunders was unassailable for a while, but I've seen criticism of him. Like, you know, it's like, so, you know, I, I, I think that uh, there are some situations where people fear if I criticize this person's work, I'm going to be perceived as criticizing their identity. Mm. And if I'm seen as criticizing their identity, I could be then classified not as a book critic, but as sexist or racist or transphobic or just misanthropic in general or anything like that. Um, and, and I think that there, that, that probably has happened, that there is that there is a little nervousness at times um, of doing it. But also, you know, uh, it, it, the, there seems like there's so much more to lose now. Mm. Um, that you almost have to be completely powerless to be in a position to attack people, that you have nothing to lose at all. Because the thing is, if you, like, if, if I, let's say I wrote a real negative review of, like, someone like Beyonce or something, like, there would be an attempt by a lot of people to basically sort of, like, 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 just like that, that would not it, to to damage my ability to keep writing about other things. And that's actually this is maybe the best way to describe it. It's like what I have found, and I've written negative reviews my for a bunch of my life. You know, there was a huge period of my life where I did that all the time. Um, and uh, what I have come to realize is that uh, that's kind of a an easier way. To be interesting like it's it's so much easier to write super negatively about something than it is to write how you know positively about the thing without seeming just like a brain dead fan like to give like a, a real critical explanation of why something is good is more complicated because i mean you know it's like you know you want to be a, like a movie critic wants to like to tear down a movie it's real simple all you got to do is take everything in it literally. Of course, it'll seem stupid if you do that. You know, it's like it's not it's not that tough. It's like saying something shitty is terrible is like the easiest thing in the world as a writer. Like anyone can do it. So, um, so I mean, I, I don't know. It's like if you're asking, like, do I feel like there has been some loss to the discourse because of um, the difficulty in doing negative criticism? I would say that's 25th on the list of reasons the discourse has gotten worse. Like it's not, to me, it's not a huge concern, you know? Um, no, no I, I agree. I, I guess I'm trying to get at, I, I remember on the long form podcast, Max Linsky was interviewing the Times book critic, Parul Segal, and he was so joyful at her willingness to negatively review anything. And I think he brought up like the Naomi Wolf uh, book, which she just savaged, and and a number of others. They, I, I think, um, what what's his name? Um, anyway, there were a couple of other savage rules he brought up. And what I thought was interesting is 
long form is never offering any kind of antagonism or really journalistic purpose to their interviews ever. It's it's really PR, right? I'm not objecting to it. I think it's nice to, to have a civilized discussion with writers and that kind of thing. But it's interesting to me how there's this kind of mischievous quality to it's so thrilling that you go out there and attack people and long form has achieved huge amounts of success without ever really being critical. Well, sure. I mean, and also part of it is that it's like, like sometimes the person who loves to see like a real takedown review is a person who probably unconsciously, maybe consciously, but probably unconsciously, sort of dreams of being in the situation where that would happen to them. Mm-hmm. Like they see that not as a real erosion of that writer's career or reputation. They see it more as an ancillary part of achieving fame. So like if you get a real negative review in the New York Times book review, it does mean the New York Times book review thought your book was important enough to write 900 words about it or whatever. And for a lot of people, that is the part that they see. They think to themselves, it's like, well, this is, um, you know, uh, and, and this isn't even just in writing. I mean, this is just sort of like a, like in fame in general, that, that they will, you know, look at a, a celebrity and sort of, you know, uh, enjoy uh, people making fun of them, partially because in their mind, like I say, possibly unconsciously, they long to be in that situation. Because it means something different. Like, like uh, you know, we, we one, of the, one of the interesting things about being a person is that we have a fixed perspective. We only have the understanding of our own life. So that every other life we see is some kind of projection of what we assume their experience is looking back. So, I, I, I mean, I don't know. It's... I, it's Negative reviews can be very, very funny. I mean, it's, it's, I, I, you know, I, it's not like I'm, like I said, like I've done this hundreds of times. You know, I, 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 I mentioned this in one of my books. One time I gave a review to Van Halen's Balance that was so shockingly negative that when I went back and read it, it was just like, what was I doing? But what had happened was I wrote that in the afternoon after going out at lunch with my girlfriend and having a terrible fight about like the nature of our relationship, coming back into the office, sitting down to write this review, and uh, almost obviously sort of expressing my unhappiness with the world through Van Halen's balance. Now, granted, I was 25 at the time, or 24 or something, and it was like, uh, I just didn't know any better. And it's like, even the thing I'm saying now, I probably wouldn't have had the language and the sort of self-awareness to see that connection but that definitely happens i mean um i i rarely feel like my books are reviewed by somebody who is really reviewing the book except when it's reviewed in other countries like if it's reviewed like in brazil or italy or germany or something i feel like that's a person who's like they got this book they know nothing about me or anything my meaning in the culture or anything like that they're just reviewing the book Almost inevitably, when it's someone from the United States, I feel that they are reviewing the concept of me or what their perception of me is as much um, and very often more than the book itself. Interesting. Um, I wanted to, before we cut off, I wanted to get your reaction to Leaving Neverland, the documentary. And Mm -hmm. 
the controversy with that and just, I don't know, your relationship to Michael Jackson growing up, because you seem like you're in a kind of sweet spot in being born in 72. You're the same age as my brother. Um, it would hit you at like one of the most impressionable ages, like his apex, I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, sure. I mean, because like, you know, I'm born in 72. Thriller comes out in 83. It's the biggest record of the decade by far. Um, uh, but by the time, you know, I go to college in 1990 and we get into the 90s, Michael Jackson had become a different kind of figure. Still mega famous, um, but perceived negatively, but not as a pedophile, just kind of perceived negatively as, oh, there were all these things about Michael Jackson that people sort of made fun of or... Or, um, you know, it's, it's, it, when, if you're a megastar like that, you're going to have that part in your career. All people do. Madonna had it. I mean, David Bowie had it. Bob Dylan had it. There's always that period where it's kind of after the apex of the fame, uh, and, and somehow you are seen kind of as like pathetic or tragic simply because you're still not as famous as you were five or six years ago. Sure. So then we kind of move into, you know, the 21st century and, and Michael Jackson kind of moves into this uh, box of just kind of weirdness. Like he is, his weirdness seems to be um, at, uh, almost more central to his iconography than anything else. There was that British documentary um, like where he spends a long part of the interview sitting in a tree and being interviewed from a tree because he likes, you know, and it was like, well, that's kind of this Michael Jackson thing. Did I believe that that he was, you know, molesting these kids? I guess my feeling was like, well, I don't know. I mean, he's weird, but I don't know if he's that weird. It's like, I, I, I don't. And then you see Leaving Neverland and it's like, I mean, the details are so graphic and there's no way you could. I, I just I find those sources to be completely unassailable to me. I mean, it's like, you know, um, and then so then there's this weird thing. It was like, wow, that's bizarre. Then there's like the next level. Do you then allow yourself to keep thinking about this or do you just stop at the point where it's like Michael Jackson is a monster? Do you go back to the idea that here was this kid when he was five years old, you know, his dad was basically beating him with a belt to learn dance steps. And then he goes on tour when he's, eight years old he's in hotel rooms with and his brothers are having sex with random girls and he's just laying there in the bed listening to this he never has a childhood all these things do you use that as a way to sort of understand uh his perversion and his sickness or is that a cop-out you don't really know so you end up kind of just kind of moving it away from it in general and sort of siphoning off his music from what you think of him. And then the question becomes like, do you still feel comfortable listening to his music? And that's always a personal thing. And some people don't, and some people do. I just found it. I, I interviewed Louis Theroux, uh, I guess over the summer. And I think he got a hold of the first person to levy an accusation against Michael Jackson that dates back to 1979 a guy named yeah. Lloyd George, or sorry, yes. Terry George. Yeah, and they, they had a long phone relationship, Michael Jackson. That's right, that's yeah. right. Kid, and, the kids and the kid, kids British. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I think he's from Leeds. And he made the point to Louis, that was where my mind changed, is his account was so credible and believable of him being 12 years old and interviewing him for five minutes. Louis plays the recording, 
And it's a nice little cute kind of interview. And Michael gets his phone number and they start, I mean, it sounded like dozens and dozens of hours of talking on the phone late at night. And then at some point, Michael begins discussions about masturbation, that kind of thing. And what I found so convincing was Terry George just saying, I don't know why everybody dwells on this because we had a really good friendship. I really like Michael. I really wish we could be friends again. And it was like, this was really consistent with friends that I've known who've sort of disclosed similar things happening to them is the confusion mm. about the grooming and that sort of stuff. And it really didn't seem to make any kind of waves in the United States, that account, which means that like, I mean, how Michael died in what, 2008, 2009, but you got almost 30 years of accusations. If you count that one, it just amazed me just how long uh, it took for a kind of critical opinion to turn on him. Yeah, uh, I, I suppose it did. I mean, it, it's, you know, there, what we, what we can't know now is like how many, what, you know, first of all, what people in 1995 thought, how many people thought these things of him then, uh, because there's no record of it. Cause there was, I mean, that's the main kind of, thing that social media offers is it sort of gives an idea of either what people like what the average person thinks or what they're willing to accept if they hear someone else say it um i mean it, it was pretty easy not to think about michael jackson in the 90s yeah i mean you know there was a video in like 1992 i think called like leave me alone where like he addresses all these you know urban myths about him like you know owning the elephant man skeleton and all these things, but all these urban myths were also promoted by him. Like right. they came in, you know, so it's like he was, he was saying, quit talking about these things that, um, that I keep pushing toward you to talk about, you know, uh, I kind of John, John Barron, like, right. Like, I mean, like selling them to tabloids himself. Sure. You know and why do the tabloids keep reporting on this? Exactly. Exactly. So, so I mean, like, you know, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's so weird. Life is weird. I mean, you think back to like 1985 and there was a rivalry between Prince and Michael Jackson. And it was like, Prince is the weird one. That's what people thought in 1985, that Prince was the weird one. You know, uh, uh, now it's just, it's so, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just amazing to have lived through things that are now other people's history. Like, I just, it's amazing to me to, to hear people talking about events the way I would have talked about Joe DiMaggio as this thing that I read about in a book. And I was like, well, actually, I remember that. That's, that's not how it was. But, you know. Then... Well, I, I, I mean, I went, I think my uncle took me to see him in 1984. I was five. And I remember just thinking, he's just beginning it was like Mike Tyson after winning the title at 20, talking to my brothers who had seen Muhammad Ali and being like, I have the best one maybe ever. And he's just started. And then both of them are gone almost immediately from that kind of stature. It was very well, interesting. I mean, that's, that's interesting that you thought that at five, because uh, I don't know, you know, my kids are five and seven. I, I don't feel like they have a real understanding of time. In a lot of ways, like a like the uh, you know they, they uh, that that's a I mean that was very.
prescient of you to see this and think that. But you well, know because I mean? of the because of the Beatles, I think because mm -hmm. you had this perfect decade that they existed. But what did you know about the Beatles when you were five? Oh well, my dad was obsessed with them. This is the best music that was ever made. And you sure, sure, but you were five. I mean, when you're five, I mean, most kids can't really write or read. So it's like, I mean, I, I knew of the Beatles music when I was five, but I had no, I mean, I, I don't know. I just, you know, you'd mentioned earlier that I'd done this rewatchables episode. And I say this in the episode and it's very true. It's like, I saw that movie about the doors in 1991. So I'm 19. Um, what I cannot do is get back into the mind I had at that time. Like, I can't do it. I don't know what I did and didn't know about The Doors when I saw that movie. I don't know if I knew anything. I, did I know really who Jim Morrison was? I, I, it's possible I didn't. You know, uh, I, you know I, I, it's, it's so strange. Like, I can't remember anything about how I viewed the world when I was five. I can remember things that happened when I was five. Mm. But... I can't remember how I felt about it. I'm not sure I can accurately remember like how I felt about 9-11. Okay, that's like 20 years ago. I was full-on adult. I was working in a newspaper. I have an idea of what I think I felt, and I can remember things that I said and the conversations I had. But so many things are different about the way I am now compared to the way I was then. I don't know if my memory of my feelings uh, are remotely accurate. Hmm. Can you still have the same intensity of this stage in the game compared to where you were exposed when you were young? Like I, uh, your, your voice cut out. The intensity of what? The intensity of response. Like, I mean, I, I have you know, my own pantheon of athletes or musicians when I was a kid, if I were to meet them now, and I've, you know, I've met a few of them as far as athletes, it's nothing like meeting the new version that has developed. Like to meet Michael Jordan would be a really big deal for me. To meet LeBron James really wouldn't mean very much to me. And it's strictly oh, because of the time. Absolutely. I mean, I think it was, I think David Stern once said something like, Whoever your hero is at nine is your hero forever. I mean, when I was nine years old, my hero was Roger Staubach of the Dallas Cowboys. Hmm. That is still more meaningful. He is still more meaningful to me than every player who has played since then. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, the answer to your question is no. I mean, the only things that I could have that intensity about would be new experiences. Yeah. Like, I'm never going to like a new rock band the way I liked Kiss or the Beatles or Motley Crue, that's not going to happen. I'm not able to feel about a new band the way I felt about Radiohead in 1997, even though at the time I was like, I can't feel the way about Radiohead as I felt about Motley Crue. I mean, it just all it, it, through life, it just happens. It's like, it's you, you, one thing that, that occurs is that you start seeing simulations of the thing you remember in different contexts of culture. Right. Like you're not seeing the exact same thing. It's not like, Oh, this new version is a copy of this old version, but the role it plays in culture. 
like the, the the space it occupies in the way people think about music or film or television or politics or whatever is the same. So of course it's kind of less, you know, it seems less new. Um, you know, uh, you there's a, a, a I think a certain feeling that that most people go through between the ages of say 16 and 25, where they sort of feel as though we are the last generation of people who are going to exist. Or this is the culmination of all culture, what's happening now. That's just something you feel at that point. Um, and and uh, it's then you go through a, maybe a period of disenchantment when you realize it's not true. Then as you get older, a sense of relief that it's not true. That, that, that this thing that you thought, this thing, you know, um, I, I, you know, the like, like the 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 intensity you feel about relationships when you're young, um, you know they always just you know those relationships always end. But like it's kind of good that they do because that it's like an abnormal amount of intensity. You know? Right. Well, no, and and to to your point, I mean, I remember being in Havana, Cuba, when Bin Laden was was assassinated, and there was a guy handing out cigars wearing a Che Guevara, like beret or something and i was like isn't this interesting and it was an american handing them out because somebody related to him had died in 9 11 and i remember being like shay was where bin laden was when he was taken out mm. by the cia he was <laughs> he was the cia's most dangerous man and now who is he to you as an american he's just kitsch and could Bin Laden become kitsch too? Could Bin Laden be? I mean, Che is the most popular image in human history. That photograph of him. Could Bin Laden in some way ever become kitsch? And Che advocated nuking New York, nuking the United States, but the message is just totally gone. And I just thought, like, how how does that happen? How do we lose the signal and just turn it into? <laughs> the exact opposite thing. It's fascinating. Well, I mean, what, what tends to happen with history is that you start with a huge field of ideas that an individual or an art form or a piece of art or a figure represents many, 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 many things. And as they march through time, these things start disappearing. They fall off the tree. They fall off the branch until you get down to like one characteristic and then that is amplified and it becomes the totality of our understanding. So all those things you're saying about someone like Che, that's like we've, we've sort of removed all of the detail till we had one detail, which is now more than a detail. It's a, it's a, it's a full portrait that we can sort of experience. Um, now, could that happen with Bin Laden? Well, I mean, it would have to be that the consensus of opinion, the consensus opinion of the United States would have to change among Americans. Not the way that a small sliver of the world currently thinks, or a sliver of the United States thinks about its country. If somehow the, the, the perception of America as a whole became mostly negative, or if the idea of the 20th century became a mostly negative thing. The connotation of the 20th century was sort of, you know, a decline of society most exemplified by the superpower that came out of World War II, the United States. And maybe, maybe he's on a t-shirt. It sure seems weird to say that, but you never know. I mean, there, there's almost nothing 
too weird to happen. <laughs> I, mean, it re- I mean, really, there's almost nothing too weird to happen. I, 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 I said that it's very true. It's like if you would have went up to somebody in like 1990, somebody who like a young teenager who was really into rock music, but was very liberal and very progressive and like was like just totally like, you know, like a real leftist person. And you said like, hey, you know what? In 30 years, um, the person who's going to represent your ideas in public is going to be Axl Rose. But you, but you know who you're going to hate? Morrissey. You're going to fucking hate Morrissey, but you're going to love Axl Rose for his politics. Somebody in 1990 has been like, what are you talking about? It's like, like I'm, you know, but that's, so it's like, it, that's just how it is. It's like anything can become its complete opposite. And in fact, anything that's really extreme seems to have a greater likelihood of becoming its opposite. Although this may, this was one thing that may change because of social media in that it will be harder for people to truly reverse their personality because there'll be too much of a record of the things they thought when they were young. And it will get thrown back in their space, their face more often. Like if you're like a real young, like super leftist progressive politician who uses Twitter a lot now, it will be hard for you to ever sort of shift away from that because they'll be like, oh, but you said this and you wrote this. It's like um, it is going to in some ways calcify people into the person they were when they were young. Oh, that's interesting. Um, do you have time for two more questions? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about your feelings about how Kurt Cobain has persisted. And I want to ask a hypothetical. Had he not committed suicide, where where would Nirvana, where would he have gone? Like if he didn't die, you know, beautiful and kind of looking like a mangy Brad Pitt. Um What's the significance to you and to America? Oh, well, I mean, I think that the, the easy short answer is that he definitely would not be perceived with the the adoration he is now. Living people just aren't. I mean, you, you've got to be dead to have that. I mean, hmm. uh, a lot of the th- ideas that he represented were so tied to youth that it would seem odd to see him not be youthful. It's like the who struggle with this. That the Who had so much, so many songs that like directly sort of promoted the idea that youthful people are the only people who matter. That it seems odd to see them now, you know. So that was part of it. Um, I feel like if 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 he had kept making music, if he had lived and kept making music, that would be part of it because. Um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of figures who, like, you know, Jimi Hendrix that work to his advantage, that there's not some, uh, like, you know, kind of really terrible Jimi Hendrix record from 1977. Like, you know, it's like, that, that didn't happen. Like, that never occurred, you know? Um, uh, it, it's, I, sometimes I wonder, like, what would have happened if Lou Reed would have died right after he went solo? So it would just be like the Velvet Underground and his earliest work. If if we would probably put him closer in the category of John Lennon and stuff than he is now, um, Nirvana is interesting in that it seems to be like pretty irrefutably they're the last canonical rock band. That is, rock recedes from the culture. We're sort of run out of bands to put in the canon, and that's the last one. When I would go to colleges, you know, they were one of the only rock artists that kids would ask me about. They'd be asking me about like the Beatles, 
They would ask me about Led Zeppelin. They would ask me about Sublime, weirdly. And they would ask me about Nirvana. Um, so I do think that as Rock further recedes from the culture, he'll be the end cap on that period. Like we didn't know it was ending with grunge. It kind of went on after that, and there were lots of good records after that. But the the sort of idea of rock as the central force in youth culture kind of ends at that point. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. You were mentioning Radiohead earlier. There are pictures of Tom York totally trying to cosplay Cobain. The same hairdo, the same sweater, like striped sweater, mm. and that kind of thing. And it's just interesting, just circling back to our beginning topic about writers finding their own voice. Hmm. Um, last question is just I've never really heard you talk about you're talking about the need to be dead in order to occupy this kind of role in the culture with J.D. Salinger it seems like he was kind of a living posthumous author from what 1965 until 2010 mm-hmm. and in this age where it took what five six years for Truman Show to go from a, a dysotopia to it's a dysotopia not to be on the Truman Show um, what do you, what do you make of Salinger and and kind of the role he occupies? Where it seems like he's retreat from publicity, from attention, from going on Oprah Winfrey, all of that. People seem very uncomfortable with it. Like we want to say he's crazy as kids are showing more signs of anxiety, depression, and suicide directly coinciding with social media and that kind of thing. Well, that's, you know, it's a complicated thing because, you know, there's there is a difference between being uh, reclusive and just not seeking publicity like Pynchon or whatever. He's yep. not really a recluse. He, you, he just doesn't do anything that promotes himself. Whereas Salinger was a recluse where he was like, I'm going to be mad at you if I see you looking at my house or whatever. He's in a really unique spot. I mean, to <laughs> was, you know, it's like to write a novel that so often becomes an obsession with people who try to commit assassinations. Yeah. I mean, if it happens once, you're like, that was insane. If it happens more than once, you're like, God damn, what did I do or whatever, you know? Um, He also wrote a book that occupies sort of a special place in American literature, like um, uh, a, uh, you know, a a novel that is now – popular to criticize but the fact that people continually criticize this old book sort of proves that it's still center you know it's still a central part of like of 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 what we sort of think about when we think about someone writing like a high school coming of age book um you know he's right you know like the, the nine stories is really good like he's a very talented guy in some ways i think he did it right like I think, in turn, if if his goal was to have his work sort of live um, forever, he did it in the right way. Like like the likelihood of that happening is much greater than almost any other you know modern writer I can think of. What is interesting though is that like I don't know if that would work today because now I think that if you decide, hey, I'm not gonna. I'm going to just pull back and not give interviews. I think the world would just lose interest. Like I I can't think of any writer right now who, if they suddenly stopped talking and stopped appearing in public, there would be a fascination with them and anything more 
than a niche way. Like I had mentioned like, you know, uh, like Franzen earlier. I think if Franzen was like, I'm never going to appear in public again. Um, I, I don't know if there would be a huge amount of interest in trying to find out what he looks like now or, or, or what's he doing, you know, and he's probably the closest candidate we'd have. I can't like, can you think of somebody you think if they disappeared, it would be a big deal. Well, I think Bobby Fischer is the only other big one, but I but I also don't know anybody in sound. I don't know that it's a time issue because are there any examples in Salinger's time or twenty years before Salinger's time? It seems pretty like sweet generis to him. Huh. Well, uh, is there precedent? There's this there's this writer. Is his name Evan Darrow? Is that um? There's a, there's a writer who uh uh. He's like a, a – I'm, I'm just kind of forgetting it now. There, there's, there's some – like he's kind of a mysterious figure. Um, uh, like William Volman, I guess, is sort of somebody who is like – everyone kind of considers him great. Not many people read his work, and he's not really part of the culture. Like, like, you know, he's just not, uh, he's, he's, he's just not, he's, you know, nobody know, you know, um, it w has that played to his benefit probably more so than if he had done like the bare minimum of publicity, hmm. like, uh, or like Don DeLillo, like Don DeLillo does not give, um, many interviews. I remember he got interviewed by like entertainment weekly one time and everyone was like, what the fuck is this? like, it's like so bizarre or whatever. You know, it's like, he's an entertainment weekly. It's like, um, you know, uh, and, and, but he's not gone. Like he's just, people understand it's like, he's choosing not to sort of be, um, a celebrity writer. Um, but I think that if Don DeLillo never published another work and never came out uh, into sort of the public eye. I think people would probably just sort of forget. I mean, forget's not the right word, but just like not be too alarmed that he wasn't there and then tell he died. And then there'd be all these obits about how important he was. But you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I bring it up just because, I mean, I think only a few years ago, the first studies came out to suggest that, the number one thing that kids want above uh, an accomplishment or occupation is to be famous. And so to have somebody that has achieved that and then turns their back on it. And I hear what you're saying about him being a recluse, but I mean, apparently he was not a recluse in Cornish, New Hampshire. He was pretty involved in his kid's life and he just didn't want anything to do with celebrity. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, it's, this is sort of a, I got, ironic thing for me to say but it is very much true one regret i have is like how many podcasts i appeared on and my willingness to be on television for a while and all the interviews i did because the thing was is like the thing people seem to like about my writing at least at first I don't hear this as much anymore, but when I was young, it was always like, oh, there's a lot of voice to this writing. I love the voice of this writing, you know, and I was really, it's a huge compliment because voice is, in my view, but the most important thing. Yeah. And the thing is, 
if people don't know what your actual speaking voice is, they project the best version of their own voice. So if somebody got Fugger Rock City or if somebody got Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Pops and they'd never heard of me before and they start reading it, the voice they would hear is themselves, their best version of themselves. But now I've done so many podcasts and I've appeared on so many things. Everyone knows what my voice is like. And frankly, a lot of people think my voice is annoying. <laughs> they don't like the way I talk. They think it's kind of nasally. Uh, they think I talk too fast or whatever. It's like it's a, it's a negative thing, which now – they hear when they read my work. So I think to myself sometimes, you know, if I'd never done any of this stuff, if I had just put the books out, it would still read to people like themselves. Like they would feel like they were writing these books with their mind. And that's like really what the goal is, to make the person feel as though the sentences are just appearing as they go. And like they've made this book themselves with their own head, even though someone else did it. It's kind of like a trick, but it's like the trick to everything. Um, but then again, if I hadn't done any of those things, maybe nobody would have noticed the books at all. So it's like this weird, you know, it's like a weird kind of double bind or like this weird kind of circular thing. It's like I regret doing the thing that probably helped people see my writing, even though I think it made the perception of my writing worse. That's really interesting. I mean, Salinger said the theater he was most obsessed with was the private theater in his readers' minds which is why he'd never allow Holden to be in a movie. He mm. wanted it exclusively to be the property of your imagination. It, you know, and, and that's like, it, it, it's, a, it's like a bold thing for him to say that because like, I would feel incredibly fraudulent to claim that about my own work. You know, like that would just seem real pretentious to me, you know, sort of, um, but he's in a different situation. Because he is Salinger. And his maybe his understanding of the value of his work is accurate. You know? And I don't know. It's an interesting thing. Yeah, it's just I'm I'm currently reviewing uh, Ken Burns' documentary for PBS on Hemingway. And it was just so interesting to look at him through the lens of the corrosiveness of celebrity addiction. Well, yeah, well, Hemingway is a, a weird example. There's a guy who seemed to have been photographed doing every single thing he ever did. It's like, how many, I've seen so many photos of Hemingway typing. It's, it's like, oh, here I am, I killed a lion. Oh, here I am with an axe. Oh, here I am typing again. Like, that guy really did leave a clear record of what he looked like at any given time and what he was doing during that period. What kind of sweaters he liked to wear, you know? Um, so uh, uh, that, I didn't know Burns was doing what I had anyway. That's interesting. I'll, six, I'll look for, you know. Yeah, six hours of it with him and him and Lynn Novick. It's really good. It's <laughs> it's, but it it's hard to look at it and not. I don't know, recontextualize Hemingway a little bit through the lens of of you know how Britney Spears, like that recent documentary about her and celebrity and Michael Jackson and Woody Allen and you mm -hmm. know uh, also just you know, nine major concussions as well as PTSD from being 18 and being blown up. And very likely there was a book that came out in 2017 called Hemingway's Brain. By, I think Dr. Andrew Farah saying this is a textbook case of CTE. And that stuff was interesting to consider with him because as the culture moves more and more towards expanding the boundaries of um, compassion, nuance, I mean 
Plexiglass. What, what do we do if O.J. Simpson dies and we look at his brain and he had severe CTE? Do we have to rethink our view of O.J. Simpson? I don't know because we're, we're like, you know, it's like all these different things are warring. The idea that violence against women and just, you know, but also CTE, it's like beyond his control. It's like mental illness. All these, it's like all these, it's almost like we have so many things to be concerned about. It's almost difficult to uh, have a stable opinion about someone. You're right. Yeah, and, and I know Ezra Edelman, I, I heard an interview that he gave where he said, like, he did explore that as a possible subject in OJ Made in America, but was like, I can't let him off the hook. But That's it, the thing. Yeah. It's interesting. I can't let him off the hook, even if it's true, and maybe especially if it's true. Well, I, I think that it would be a. a the uh, you know as a choice as a choice a director would make I, I guess I understand that because if you add that element into it it becomes then the first thing people say uh -huh. and whatever is the first thing people say becomes the main thing people say I thought about this all the time uh, more and more I guess as a feature writer that's you know if I'm doing a profile on. Uh, you know, Taylor Swift or Kobe Bryant or Eddie Van Halen or whoever, I was always thinking to myself, it's like, well, okay, whatever is the thing other people see interesting about this, make sure that you're careful because if it's too easy to see this thing, it's going to be like you wrote nothing else. It's going to be like you wrote one line. You know, and, 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 you, and that's the exact, you know, it's like, I, 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 I never, I don't want it boiled down into one line. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the, the kind of nature of how culture works now is to microscope everything down to one simple idea. Um, and as a writer, uh, I hate that. Oh, you're right. I mean, it's interesting. I saw, I think on Twitter, Taylor Swift was objecting to some joke that was in a TV show just mocking her for all these breakups and just instantly using it as fodder for her music. But, you know, I, I would be fast. I mean, it, it's an interesting place to go because it is such an interesting feature of her career, but to bring it up, I would imagine would not be a pleasant moment. Well, I was, you know, I did that profile on her and, and Taylor Swift very often, if someone does a profile about her, um, she will then promote that profile. And huh. she will, you know, she'll send, you know, a letter or roses or whatever. I don't know if she sent roses to the reporter, you know. Um, but, like, she didn't promote the story I wrote about her. She only promoted the pictures that came with it. And huh. the reason, apparently, was that she did not like the fact that I asked her about the perception that she was calculating. And mm. she really hates the word calculating. And it really bothers her. Um, you know, and that, and, and from her, and, you know, from her perspective, to kind of turn this around, you know, I say when you're a writer, you worry that the whole thing is going to be boiled down to one sentence. As somebody who's also been written about, you feel that even more. Sure. Because, like, you'll read that, you know, somebody will do a profile on you and you read the piece. And, like, very often, like, the journalist thinks it's positive and you think it's negative because it was actually fair. Hmm. That's interesting. Did you find it hard with Kobe Bryant? I mean, with the elephant in the room there or, you know, 
What did you make after his death about how contentious it was to bring up what happened in Colorado? Well, when I interviewed him, like, I was only going to have an hour, and then he showed up late. So when he sat down, I was like, hey, look, like, I don't have much time to do this. I'm not going to pretend like we're going to be friends. There's things I want to ask you about, and I just want you to answer them because I've been interested in this my whole life. And he was like, good, let's do it. And that interview went great. And he brought up the Colorado stuff. Like, he brought that up before I did. I was going to bring it up, but he brought it up first. Um, and the fact that he brought it up was actually very smart for him because then he was able to sort of frame the conversation about it in his own terms. Like, you know, once somebody says like, okay, I'm going to talk about this, um, then you can't be like, oh no, I want to talk about it this way. It was like, like, he was like, this is how we're going to go through this. Um, so that interview, at least among athletes was the one, probably the best and easiest one I ever did. And that he wanted to talk and he was interested and, and he wanted me to understand him. Yeah. Uh, last question, uh, best and worst person that you ever interviewed, right? And not necessarily them, but just the dynamic of you going in there to interview them, dropping in on them. Uh, well, from a, from the idea of what ended up being the piece it was Kobe. That was the that was the most effective. Like we talked for ninety minutes. It was like the most effective ninety minutes I ever had interviewing somebody. Um, the most sort of exciting to me was probably Jimmy Page or Eddie Van Halen. I guess just because it is very weird. Everybody says this, but it is true. It's like sometimes, like you're like in the cab going to the interview. And you do think like, boy, if I was 13 years old and I told myself I'm going to see Jimmy Page to talk about Led Zeppelin 2, like, you know, it's like, it'd be like, I, you know, granted, everything when you're 13 would seem amazing. If you found out the adult version of it, going to the bar would be amazing. But you do think that um, in terms of kind of just the experience, Noel Gallagher from Oasis was real fun. Um, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco was one of the only times where I interviewed a guy and I thought if the circumstances were different, we'd be friends. Like I could see if like, if I lived in Chicago and I wasn't a journalist, but I ran into him, it seems like we have a lot in common. Um, and uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It was like, a, there's a lot, you know, a lot of the interviews that see like that seemed the most pleasant, you end up listening to the tape and there's not much there. Like, mm -hmm. a, I, I don't know. I always thought of these things as work. Like I never, I'm not like Susan Orlean where I'm like, I'm gonna spend five months with you, you know, for one story. I would never do that. I would never let someone do that to me. I mean, because I, I would just never, I would never allow that. Um, so I just, what I like is when both me and the person I'm interviewing know what's going on. I'm not under the illusion that this is anything other than work. They're not under any illusion that this is anything but a journalistic endeavor, but we're both being honest because we're honest about the scenario. Okay, real last thing. Who would your top three be, alive or dead, to have, act, to have an hour with the interview? 
I've always wanted to interview Axl Rose. Every publication I've ever worked for has attempted to set up a situation where I interview Axl Rose. He's never said yes. <laughs> um, if I could talk to Bill Clinton and actually ask him anything I want, that would be up there. Third would be... Um, I don't know, because it's, it's this thing where... Part of me thinks you should pick somebody who really matters, you know, like you should pick somebody who's like, a, like, you know, like, like Trump or something and ask him these, you know, these direct questions or, or talk to like Alan Greenspan about how he kind of viewed his life, all these things. But then another part of me is like, well, if I could pick anybody, you know, should I pick Larry Bird? You know, should I pick David Letterman? These people who had like personal significance to me. Sure. I don't know. You know, it was, I, the fact of the matter is, it's like I did a lot of profiles, and a lot of the people that were interesting to me, I, I don't feel like, I don't feel like there's there's nobody who like feels as though I missed it. I missed that. I I wanted you know, like I would have liked to interview Prince, but the fact that I didn't interview Prince, that's that's fine. It's, I'm not. I'm not losing any sleep over that. It's like you know, um, the the, uh, the thing is, it's also you know, having been interviewed by other people has changed my perception of the whole thing. It's like a, uh, it's so often a bad experience that I now feel sympathy for the person I'm interviewing, hmm. and as a consequence, I'm a less aggressive interviewer. Hmm. That's interesting. Why has it been a, a shitty experience for you to be interviewed? Because what inevitably happens is the person talks to you and uh, uh, very often uh, you realize that the person they presented themselves as was not who they were. And, and, and I don't even say that like in some insidious way. I think that that just happens. I bet people feel the same way about me having interviewed them. Um, but also it's like the piece comes out and it's never right. It's always, there's always something in it wrong. They're either, they either misquoted something I said, or they quoted me correctly, but they changed the context or they used the things I said to sort of forward the thesis they already had. They did all the things that I'm sure that I've done myself. But when you're the person seeing it, it's disappointing because you just realize that those things stick with you even if people don't believe them. I mean, like, even like, like there are things that people bring up to me when they interview me very often that they bring them up as proof that the assertion about me was wrong or whatever. And yet it's like, ah, I it still exists. This thing still exists. It's like, you know, you, 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 you give an interview to someone and they write a piece, you've given them control of your reality. You're, you've given them the ability to basically say, this is what this person is like. And I have never had an experience where I was like, that is how it's like. It's never happened to me. It's funny you say, I mean, 
there seems to me like getting I, I didn't intend to get into journalism by any means, but there is the kind of person who is thrilled to be a journalist is a pretty frightening person by and large. Well, that's 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 who I was as a young person, though. I mean, that's and and I, I'm I'm very fortunate. When I say a young person, I mean somebody in my twenties. Like I was, I was such an aggressive reporter when I was young. Like I was, you know, I, I would, I would actually like, I, I don't know. It, it it was so weird because it just seems idiotic now. But I feel like. There was actually a sense when I was in my 20s is that if I can interview this person, I'm going to almost like uh, confuse them into telling me something they don't want to tell me. Like I'm going to, you know, it's like like I, I was so the whole idea was I want to make this person give me more than they want to express. You know, I, I want to get I want to get a truth here that they are hiding a hidden truth that other people can't get. Um, I was like that. Uh, and, and, you know, I was just, I mean, now I like, there's things I've realized that I didn't realize when I was young. I now realize that taking someone's quote accurately, but changing the way the mood or the, or the, or the, or the context or whatever of how it was expressed is basically just as bad as making up a quote entirely. Because if someone makes up a quote entirely, you could be like, I never said that. I would never say that. That's false. But if someone takes what you actually said, but changes the connotation of it, then you're really trapped. Because it's like, well, I did say that, but that's not what I meant. I mean, one thing that I learned real quick from being interviewed by people is don't try to be funny and sarcastic. Because if this person actually is not uh, a fan of you and that they're, you know, it's like they're going to use that against you, you know, and that's and that's that becomes a scary thing where you start like it's easier for me to interview someone than it is to be interviewed because when I'm being interviewed, I am just at all moments like, you know, like like if I I do an interview um, and it's bad, uh, that's like my own fault. But if someone interviews me. I can think I did like a real open job and regret it for the rest of my life, you know? Yeah, it's, it's funny. When you say it, it reminds me of something that was written about Salinger, that he had like the best ability with one gesture, one tell to nail a, like a caricature of a secondary character. And we're all secondary characters in each other's lives. And generally, when we reduce somebody to just one feature, it's not flattering. Oh, absolutely. Or even if it's not flattering, it's just not right. Like, (laughs) I I had to do an interview on the band Soul Asylum uh, one time. And it was like the interview, I had to have it to, like, my editor at, like, 6 p.m. And the interview was supposed to be on Thursday, and it got pushed to Friday, and it got pushed to like 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So I had to interview the singer, Dave Perner, and write this piece immediately. So I almost have no time. He's completely uninterested in doing this. Um, But at one point, I remember that he had dated Winona Ryder. So I asked him a question about that, and he says something completely innocuous about it, but it was just kind of funny or whatever. 
And then like I built the whole story around this quote, almost like what he said about his relationship with Winona Ryder is a way to understand the entire trajectory of Soul Asylum as kind of this indie rock band that became a commercial rock band and then kind of became a secondary band. And like people love that story. I think I might have won an award for it. And it's so insane that that's what I did. That like I asked him a question about something, he gave an answer off the cuff, and I was like, well, this is something that I can use for something else. Now, I'd never do that again, but in order to learn that lesson, I had to do it and then have it done to me. So it's like an impossible thing. It's like, like in order to be smart, you have to experience so much stupidity. <laughs> it's funny you say that. I'm having Jonathan Ames on the show, I think, next uh -huh. And I desperately want to ask her about Fiona Apple, like, I, because I just find her such an interesting character. Um, a good friend of mine, my piano teacher, her daughter was best friends with Fiona when they were like 14. But I'm not going to bring up Fiona Apple to John. Well, you know what? I, 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 I don't want to say something that will, that will cause you to do something you'll regret, but you probably can. Jonathan Ames is an incredibly nice person. Yeah. Like he is, he, and he's not a shy person, obviously. Mm -hmm. And um, I would guess that his memory of his relationship with Fiona Apple, Fiona Apple is positive. And I think that he would say positive things. Um, uh, I, I, you know, that's, but that's the hard thing. You never really know. You don't know what people are going to be touchy about. Um, and it seems like he could be touchy about that, but I bet he'd be cool with it. Yeah. I'm on the fence. Chuck, I want to really thank you for today. I know I took up a lot of your time, but thank you. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for doing this. It was fun. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening. <laughs>